Would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3? Romans chapter 3. And if you can, I want to invite you to stand. Let's start in verse 9. Romans chapter 3, starting verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it's written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is in their, under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are destruction and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You may be seated. Oh Lord, we rejoice in singing praises to you. And we cry out for your Holy Spirit this morning to help us. Help us. Help me to be faithful. Please be merciful to me, Lord. Be merciful to this congregation. Help all these beloved brothers and sisters to be faithful in the way that they listen. I pray that they would be just like the Bereans, making sure that everything that's spoken from this pulpit is in accordance, in agreement with your holy word. So please help us. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, the state of theology, uh, the state of theology, uh, Ligonier is behind this research where they go and they start researching how the church, how America is doing as it comes to theology. They release their data from 2022. And one of their questions was, are we born innocent? So statement number 15 says, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. So the, U, the, the research saw the, the U.S. adult findings, 71% agree and only 21% disagree. U.S. evangelical findings. 65% agree, 32% disagree. So they go on to say, the fact that almost two-thirds of evangelicals believe that humans are born in a state of innocence reveals that the biblical teaching of original sin is not embraced by most evangelicals. This truth is foundational for uh, for an accurate understanding of the gospel and of our absolute need for the grace of God in salvation. 
what you believe about sin will influence how you live and how you think about everything else. The doctrine of sin, the doctrine of original sin, passing from Adam to his generations that follow after him, the doctrine of total depravity, affect in a profound way all aspects of our life. It affects how you raise children. It affects how you see your marriage. It affects how you see church, how you do church, how you see government, and how you do government, and so many other areas. That's how important it is, the doctrine of sin. So today, as we continue our journey, we started a, a series on what makes us a Reformed Baptist church. We're going to continue there, and I just want to refresh our minds in our first sermon we, we trace our historical roots. We saw the Reformed Baptist Church is not something new. We're not creating something new. We are going back to the ancient paths. We are going back to historical unity with other Christians. We saw that there is a biblical tradition. We saw that there is historical solidarity. And we are very thankful for what the Lord Jesus has accomplished in history. We are not trying to start something new. Amen? And then in the second sermon, we start developing what we mean by being reformed. What we mean by being reformed. And I don't mean others. I'm saying what we mean by being reformed. And if you remember, we went to the Reformation and we saw how the heart of the Reformation can be summarized with the five solas. And these five solas are just taking us back to the truths of the Bible. Sola Scriptura. We had sola gratia, solus Christus, sola fide, soli deo gloria. Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, for God's glory alone. That's all we saw. So now we're going to continue, and what actually we're going to do is just to develop these five solas. And especially the sola gratia, soli deo gloria, solus Christus. So today we're going to start a series on the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace. And the doctrines of grace are inseparable from these five solas. It's just a, just a continuity. What, what do we mean by grace alone? When you say grace alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone, what do we mean by that? Because some people are going to say, I believe in grace alone. But then they're going to add their works. They're going to say, I believe in Christ alone. But then they're going to add themselves to salvation. I believe in soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. But I had to do something to achieve that salvation. Robbing God of His glory. So as we continue, the doctrines of grace that we're going to start today is just a development of what we mean by those solas that we proclaim. Steve Lawson writes, Only... A correct view of salvation, one in which salvation is seen as entirely of God's grace, sola gratia, can cause a person to give glory to God alone. As long as salvation is misunderstood to be partly of God and partly of man, praise will be given only what? Partly to Him. 
As long as man mistakenly thinks that saving grace is of God, but that saving faith belongs to man, only limited praise will be given to God. However, when one comes to see that salvation is all of God, both grace and faith, then all praise will be given to Him. Only sovereign grace gives singular glory to Him. Hallelujah. Amen. So that's where we're going to start. The doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace. What does it mean, doctrines of grace? What, what, what is doctrine? A teaching. Right? Doctrine is the same as teaching. So those are teachings about what? About grace. Specifically, God's grace in saving us. So the doctrines of grace are the teachings that helps us understand the grace of God in saving us. The doctrines of grace are also called, you have different names, so some people call this the five points of Calvinism, or Calvinism. And I believe that John Calvin would be rolling his grave if he found out that they named the doctrines of grace after him. Here is a man who was super concerned with the glory of God in everything, and suddenly people name this marvelous system of doctrines after him, he would be embarrassed and ashamed and he would say, remove that. So it's fascinating that we call the five points of Calvinism when John Calvin was not the author of that. He did not create this. Actually, as you study history, you know that these five points were not Christians saying, here's what we believe, was actually a reaction because first, some students of Jacob Arminius in Holland, they came and they declared the five points of Arminianism. And then they respond with that. But, and then they name later as the five points of Calvinism. But John Calvin was not in charge of that. For some Christians, and I would say for myself, before the Lord opened my eyes to behold the doctrines of grace, these five points of the doctrines of grace are just like a monster. Right? So for some of us, and I'm, I'm the first one to raise my hand, the doctrines of grace were just this ugly monster that we are imposing the Bible, ready to devour men's will. That's how I saw the doctrines of grace before I saw the grace in those doctrines. As this monster. Spurgeon once said, the doctrine which we called Calvinism did not spring from Calvin. We believe that sprang from the great founder of all the truth, and that is Jesus Christ. Amen? And there is an acronym for the five points of the doctrines of grace. And was an acronym created later in the English language with the TULIP. So we call the TULIP the five points of the doctrines of grace. And the TULIP, you have the T for total depravity. And that you need to understand, there was an answer to something that people had proclaimed, and that was partial depravity. So the students of Jacob Arminius said that man was just partial depraved, had been partially affected by sin. So they replied with, no, the Bible teaches that we are totally depraved. And then after that, you have the U for unconditional election. And the unconditional election is a reply to what? Conditional election. 
that God chose those whom he foresaw that would choose him first. And then you have limited atonement. Why limited atonement? Because they were teaching that the atonement of Christ was unlimited. Jesus died for everybody. And if Jesus died for everybody, everybody will be saved. And then you have irresistible grace. Why? They thought that there was a resistible grace. Ask Paul if God's grace in saving him was resistible or not. Ask any one of us. We were walking our ways when God's grace came and conquered us. Amen? And there was the perseverance of the saints because they had the instability of the saints. As if we could lose, if, as if Jesus could lose us. So that's the tulip of the five points of the doctrines of grace. Uh, some other Reformed scholars, they change the acronym. They, some don't like this acronym. So for example, if you listen to R.C.'s Pro, he, he changed completely the tulip. He does not like the tulip. I disagree. I think that's a very good acronym. Or so, for example, uh, Timothy George, in his book Amazing Grace, he changes tulip for roses. And it's a very good one also. He calls radical depravity, overcoming grace, sovereign election, eternal life, and singular redemption. It's just the same thing. Just trying to be clever and come up with something new. Uh, Greg Foster, in his book The Joy of Calvinism, he actually changes to the to kind of to put the progress of the Trinity at work. So he says the statement, the state of man before salvation, wholly defiled, and then he moves to the work of the Father in salvation, unconditional choice, work of the Son in salvation, personal salvation, work of the Spirit in salvation, supernatural transformation, and then the state of man after salvation, in faith and perseverance. Also, it, I fully agree. I will talk more about that. But there is the Trinitarian aspect of these points that's very important. I just think that Greg Foster in his book, The Joy of Calvinism, is really, really harsh against the tulip. And I think it's unnecessary. I will keep the tulip. I, I like it. I think if well explained, it's a wonderful acronym to teach people about these beautiful doctrines of grace. I have no strong objections towards that. Uh, and I asked Michael to put these chain links to the ladders because these ladders are chained together. You cannot separate them. I know that some of you have heard people saying, oh, I'm a three-pointer Calvinism. Or I'm a four-pointer. I'm sorry, there is no way. They're all connected. You cannot break this chain here. They're all connected. Connected logically and connected Trinitarian, in a Trinitarian way. You think about those whom the Father chose, unconditional election. The Father chose some. You cannot read your Bible, and that's what I try to do before embracing the doctrines of grace. Is basically try to ignore all the passages, all the many passages about God's election. So it's clear that God elects some. God the Father elects some. Then God the Son comes to die, not for everybody, but to die for those whom the Father chose. Otherwise, you'd be breaking the Father and the Son. Can you imagine the Father choose some, and then the, father, the Son comes and says, I don't care those you choose, I'm going to die for everybody. 
And then you have the Spirit saying, I, I, I don't know. Who am I supposed to regenerate now? So you'd have a confusion in the Trinity. And that's why it's very important to keep these points all together. And I think the, the most important one is the first one. That's the most important. You've got to understand total depravity. Because once you understand that, all the other ones will be begging to come after that. Sometimes you hear people say, oh, I, I just cannot believe in, in the L or the T. The T is often the most rejected one, total depravity. But among Christians, especially the, the L, the limited atonement, people have a hard time with that. But I hope to show you that they're all inseparable and they're beautifully, beautifully interwoven, connected with one another. Uh, and these five points of the doctrines of grace is just helps us as we behold the, the, the saving grace of God in our lives, honestly, that we will enlarge our hearts, that we will enlarge our hearts to love God more and more. Uh, to quote Stephen Lawson once again, he says, the lofty truths of divine sovereignty in salvation provide the greatest and grandest view of God the doctrines of grace serve to elevate the entire life of the church. Whenever the church becomes increasingly, increasingly man-centered, she begins the downhill slide, often without recovery and always to her detriment. And that's true. Once you start putting man in the center of salvation, you start going downhill. So, here's the outline of this morning's sermon. That was just the introduction. I'm just presenting to you the doctrines of grace. And, and the outline is we're going to be total depravity defined, then total depra depravity verified, and we're going to walk through the old, new, and then especially Jesus' teachings, and then total depravity applied. Uh, today we're just going to walk through total depravity defined, and then we're going to walk through total depravity verified in the Old Testament. That's my goal. May the Lord be with us. And help me. Amen. So let's go to total depravity defined. Defining. And the first, can you, you're probably, if you, how many people here have never heard about these five points? Good. So sometimes you, it can be kind of weird. You're going to talk about grace, and the first thing you're going to talk about is sin, total depravity. I thought that was the doctrines of grace. I thought that would make us happy. But grace is only grace when you see where you're coming from. Unless you have this black background, you will not see the glory of God in saving you. So we must start right here. Apart from comprehending the sinfulness of our state, how deplorable we are outside the grace of God. We will never see the gospel as good news of great joy. So it always starts here. And, and before defining positively, I think it's important to define it negatively. Okay? Because that's an issue I had was this misunderstanding of total depravity. So let's start with what it is not. What total depravity does not mean. Okay? So... First of all, it does not mean that humanity has no dignity. Because sometimes people, oh, you, 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 
You believe that man is completely depraved, therefore there is no dignity in human beings. They are just like any dog or, or animals or a robot. And that's just a lie. Okay? Total depravity does not say that. Actually, we, we know that humanity has dignity. God created humanity. And even after the fall, we still bear some, in, in some aspect, the imago Dei, the image of God in us. Total depravity does not mean that man has no capacity to accomplish great things. Man is still the crown of creation, even fallen. Fallen man has a lot of skills and talents. Let's look at all the technology that we have, airplanes, medicine. Okay? But all these talents are infected with sin. That's what we mean by that. All these talents and skills are not holy. They are infected with sin. Second, we do not mean by total depravity that man does not have a will. That was my understanding. Is that suddenly you make people without wills. And that's not true. We believe that people, fallen men, have wills and they have strong wills. But the will is affected by sin. We have this idea that man has a free will. As if the will of man is just this island surrounded by sin but was never infected by sin. So we believe that men have will and have strong will but infected with sin. Third, total depravity does not mean that humanity is altogether devoid of any qualities that are beneficial to society. We are not saying that man cannot do good things to society. People do good things. Jesus says, you who are evil, give good gifts to your children. You can see a pagan, an unbeliever mom taking care of her children. She's doing a good thing. So there are good things done. But these good things are never good in the eyes of God to bring salvation to those people. God in His mercy... His restraining mercy provides things around us to restrain evil. Fourth, humanity is not utter depraved. So total depravity does not mean that we are as sinful as we can be. We are not saying that everyone is just as evil as Hitler or Stalin or Saddam Hussein or Nero. We are not saying that. The Bible is clear that some people go deeper and deeper in their sins. So we are not saying that man is as depraved as he could be. Because people have space to grow in their depravity. And the last one. That humanity has no responsibility and accountability. So total depravity does not mean that humanity has no responsibility. That's how people say, oh, you believe in total depravity. You believe that men are just robots. No. We do not deny human responsibility and accountability. I'll talk more about that. But you think about a drunk person who runs over and kills somebody. He had no ability to not do that. He was drunk. But because of his inability, is he not held accountable? He still hold accountable. He's held accountable even though he was incapable of not doing that. 
So total depravity does not mean that man has no responsibility. So let's move to what he means. What he means. He means that total depravity is the biblical teaching that all human beings have all the parts of their composition. Body, emotion, will, mind, desire, affected, defected, and infected by sin. That's what total depravity teaches. The internal corruption of Adam's sin nature has been imputed to the totality of every part of every person from the moment of conception. So everyone is born infected with sin in his roots. And that affects everything. The internal corruption of Adam's sin nature has been imputed to the totality of every part of every person from the moment of conception. So the word total, that's why I like, some people don't like the word total. I think it's a wonderful word, total. It speaks of the totality of extension, all people. Total meaning all people. And also to the totality of man's composition, all the parts that make a person a human being. All people, totality, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, from all the corners of the earth, they're unable to save themselves. Three authors writing about this, they define, and I think it's good how they define, they say the adjective total does not mean that each sinner is as totally or completely corrupt in his actions and thought as it is possible for him to be. Instead, the word total is used to indicate that the whole of man's being has been affected by sin. The corruption, the corruption extend to, extends to every part of man, his body, his soul, Sin has affected all the totality of man's faculties, his mind, his will. Another word that we often use is radical dep depravity. Radical. R-A-D-I-C-A-L. Radical. And if you think about the word radical, comes from the Latin that means what? Root. Root. So we are infected and corrupted in, in, in our roots. And if you have a, a rotten root, what happens to the other things? It's infected. So, the total implies the totality of sin demonstrated in man's total composition, the totality of man's life from beginning to end, and the totality of human race, every single person. Now, the word depravity, the word depravity comes from the Latin pravus, and is related to corruption, something that's crooked, and that's another view of sin, how, what sin does to us. So depravity is, implies, total depravity implies that all the parts of our composition is corrupted by sin. There's nothing, there's not a single part in us that has not been affected by sin from the moment of conception. Do you need to teach a little baby how to sin? No. Why? From the moment of conception, he's born Infected with sin. So the question is, is total depravity something that John Calvin taught? That's something that John Calvin created. That was my understanding. Oh, Calvin, and so John Calvin created these teachings. And then you go through the scriptures and you find all over the Bible. And I would start with Paul. Paul says in Romans 3, we read earlier, 
What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged the all, the totality here. All, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous. Not one, all, totality of people. All have turned aside. And that's why he wants to preach the gospel to all. Because the gospel is the power of salvation to change people. And all Jews and Gentiles. There is nobody in the globe that escapes the infection of sin. That's what Paul is teaching us. So first there is this totality all over the globe. The four corners. And then Paul goes on to say it's not just out there in everybody. It's inside So he goes on to say, verses 10 through 18, as it's written, where is it written? In the institutes of John Calvin? Is Paul now getting the institutes of John Calvin? No, he's going to the Old Testament. So as as it's written, no one is righteous, not one. No one what? Understands the mind. No one seeks the will. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. And no one, no one does what? Good. The hands doing something. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongue. How is to deceive? Their lips. Their mouth. Their feet. And their eyes. The totality of man's composition. From head to toe. Infected with sin. Paul describes all humanity as under sin. It's interesting that he does not say in sin, but under sin, because he's picturing sin as what? A master, a lord, where everyone is born under that slavery of sin. Tom Schreiner says, When Paul considers the human condition, however, he does not merely describe what people actually do. He also explains the nature of human beings. Those who are born in Adam do not merely sin. They are also slaves to sin. Sin as an alien power dominates them. They are under its rule and authority. Brothers and sisters, far away from me to persuade you to become a Calvinist or a Reformed or an Augustinian. My goal is to show you what the Scriptures teach. My goal is to persuade you to see what the Bible teaches. And Paul is very clear here. Every human being is conceived and born under the power and lordship of sin as the fruit of Adam's sin. And then every aspect of man has been contaminated and affected by sin. And even the good deeds that we perform outside the grace of God, they are infected with sin. So you might think about that old lady, sweet old lady, that sweet neighbor. She's not a believer, but she's so kind. She makes clothes for the poor kids in Africa. She sends money to humanitarian organizations in India. She bakes cookies for everyone. What a sweet old lady. And we have this idea that somehow these good deeds have not been infected with sin. And God will accept her. Despite the fact that she never embraced Christ as her Savior. We have this wrong mentality. And that's what we saw earlier. 
the state of theology, that people think that we are born innocent. No, everything is contaminated by sin. Sin makes all people, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, sick and healthy, black and white, red and yellow, unable and unwilling and incapable of saving himself. We need a Savior. So, let's verify that. We, we define, so now, let's verify. Let's see if that's what the Bible teaches. We already saw Romans, but let's start earlier. Let's go to the Old Testament. So in this portion here, just want to let the Scriptures proclaim this truth about the depravity of man. Sin establishes the whole plot line of the Bible after Genesis 3. The whole plot line of the Bible after Genesis 3 is the consequence of sin. If our depravity, listen to this, if our depravity is not total, the story of the Bible makes no sense. Because we have a God who is seeking, a triune God who is seeking those who cannot seek Him. The story of the Bible is a triune God seeking, pursuing a people who cannot pursue Him. We love Him, why? Because He first loved us. So the doctrine of total depravity does not start with Calvin and in Calvin's institutes or the Calvin's commentary. It starts right in Genesis 3. And I invite you to open your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2. And Genesis 1 and 2 begins the drum of Scripture. And we have this beginning with a glorious and good God creating a good and beautiful creation. This good creation is crowned with good humanity. It's good, it's good, it's good. Read Genesis 1 and 2. Good, good, good. A good God, good creation, crowned with a good humanity. The man and the woman, created in a very good state, in good relationship with God. There is a picture of a, a, a covenantal relationship between God and mankind as Adam stands our representative, the federal head of humanity. And let me tell you, Genesis 1 and 2, that's the only place in the Bible outside Jesus Christ that we're going to find someone, someone with, with a free will. Adam prior to the fall is the only, Adam and Eve prior to the fall, they are the only people with a will that's free. Free from sin. That's the only couple. Besides Christ, nobody else is born with a free will. Because sin infects us. In Genesis 2 ends, you can look at verse 25 by saying that they were naked and they were not ashamed. Their naked is a sign of innocence and intimacy. They have nothing to hide either from God or from one another. There was no sin between the three of them. And that's in Genesis 3 that everything falls apart. Genesis 3. Sin enters the story of God and we behold the totality of the devastating effects of sin upon humanity. We call the Genesis 3 and the account of the first sin. How, how do we label that account? The fall. Why? Because man, according to Paul in Romans chapter 3, man has fallen totally from the glory of God. He has fallen short totally from the glory of God. There was a state of sinless perfection and we have fallen from that state. 
And the only and that's so important because if we don't understand how Adam represents us and how Adam's sin is imputed to humanity, we cannot understand Jesus Christ. If Adam's sins are not imputed to the next generation, Jesus' righteousness cannot be imputed to his people. It's only by this federal head, this one who represents us, one negatively and the one positively, that we can understand that. So, everything after Genesis 3 is contaminated with sin. Amen? Until Jesus comes, and that's why he needs to be born, born of the virgin. <laughs> there is no stain of sin in his conception. Everything after Genesis 3 is contaminated with sin. Uh, think about cyanide, the poison. One little tiny drop, and we infect the whole water. And that's all we see with sin. Infects the whole humanity. Creation itself groans, is affected by sin. In Genesis 3, you can see that there is death. Sin brings death. You might say, but Adam and Eve did not die. But they die spiritually. The first death, is, and that's the most important death, is the spiritual death. They die spiritually. And the physical death that follows it is just to declare that there is a spiritual death. Natural death is a reminder that everyone is conceived in original sin. The only exception is Christ's death because he dies on our behalf. Because of our sin. The reason why little babies die in the womb. Why do babies die in the womb? Because they are little angels and innocent? No, because they are conceived in sin. They're sinful from conception. That's why they die. So the primary death that takes place in Genesis 3 is a spiritual death, separation, the shalom that there was between God and man. There is no longer. The rest of the Bible is very clear. There is enmity. There is hostility between God and man. Nobody is born as a friend or a child of God after Adam's fall. You see that Adam and Eve try to hide themselves from God's presence. They don't want to see God. They see God as an enemy now. They need to hide themselves. And Paul, in Ephesians 2, when he's looking back to Genesis 3, he says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by birth, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Brothers and sisters, nobody is born in neutrality. Nobody is born neutral. Everybody is born, if you take the teaching of the scripture seriously, everybody is born under God's wrath because of our sinful nature. So, the whole fabric of humanity is infected with sin after Genesis 3. And then from Genesis 4 through 11, you can just see how sin just keeps permeating and spreading. And what was beautiful in Genesis 1 and 2, God and man in God's presence dwelling with Him. You come to Genesis 11 and man is just scattered. Scattered from the presence of God. And we need God to rescue us. And God comes and rescues Abraham to use him as the means to rescue his people. So, in Genesis 6, let me skip here. Let's go to Genesis 6. Genesis 6, after Genesis 3, the Lord declares that He saw the weakness of man, that the weakness of man was great in the earth, and that what? 
every, look at the totality, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's not Calvin, that's Moses writing inspired by the Spirit of God. John Wen in his commentary in Genesis, he says, Heart is the center of the human personality. In biblical anthropology, where will and thought originate, it's not merely the source of the emotions as in English. This text asserts that every human thought from its inception is intrinsically ra, evil. Few texts in the Old Testament are so explicit and all-embracing as this in, spe in specifying the extent of human sinfulness and depravity. Now, the God who looked on creation and said, well, that's good, that's good. Now God looks and He sees and says, how evil it is. And then what does the Lord do? He sends a flood. It's a decreation. Remember, before it was just waters and creation is just order coming out of the water. Genesis 6 is just the opposite. It's a decreation. God judging is a decreation. Now the chaotic waters is overcoming the order. But even after the flood, you'd think, okay, now we have Noah and his family, righteous Noah, and that's wonderful. Now sin has been taken care of. And what happens right after Noah and his family come out of the ark? They sin. Yes, they sin. So in Genesis 8.21, we read, The Lord saying that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, showing that what man needs is not just physical deliverance from a flood, that man needs actually a new creation. Man needs a new heart. Man needs to be born again. We need a new Adam. We need a new Noah. They are not enough. They cannot save us. So the story after Genesis 3 is the story of depravity and alienation from God's presence. And God must act because man has no power and ability to ascend the mountain of the Lord on his own. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? The one with clean hands and pure heart. And the only one is Christ. And we come in Him. That's the only way that we ascend. Because we are in Him. In Exodus we see that God must save. God must seek. God must come. Amen. People are lost. So that's just a brief summary in the Torah. Total depravity. There's so much more but we don't have time. As we move to the prophets, and here I'm using the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, and then the writings. And as we think about the prophets from the uh, earlier prophets to the latter prophets, from Joshua to the book of the Twelve, we also see the prophets declaring this doctrine of total depravity. The prophets are very bold in declaring a message that people did not want to hear. And especially the people of Israel who thought themselves to be Basically sinless. Because they were children of Abraham. So, Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 1, he says, I'm go back here. Isaiah 1, verses 4 through 6. Look at that. Ah, sinful nation. What, what nation is that? Sodom? 
Gomorrah, Tyre, the Babylonians. No, it's Israel. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of your foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. The totality of men, from the top of the head to the bottom of the foot, all infected with sin. It's picturing Israel as one man here. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, the wonderful text about the death of Christ. In verse 6, we, we hear saying, We all, like sheep, what did we do? Have gone astray. We all, not some of us, we all have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Christ alone, we, we need a good shepherd to come and bring us back. Here, you come back to the fold. Turn with me to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. And I need to move faster here, brothers and sisters. And the plan was to do just one sermon of total depravity. What a joke. Isaiah 59. Uh, that's, uh, we saw this text when we were studying the spiritual warfare. And that's basically we, what we have here is an exposition of Genesis 3. And it's just how the Lord declares the iniquity. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. They cannot save or His ear dull. They, he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. That's what happens in Genesis 3. The separation between Adam and God. Sin. And then he goes on to say, uh, For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers, your lips, your tongue. He just continues, verse 7, your feet, verse 9, your eyes. You see, the totality of man's composition is infected with sin. Riken says, Lips, tongue, hands, feet. There is not one single part of us that's not sinful. This is Isaiah's way of saying that we are totally depraved. Even our minds are depraved. For we think evil thoughts. As Isaiah considered the totality of human depravity, he concluded that our sins testify against us. That's verse 12. And look at verse 16. He saw that there was no man, no man to do what? To bring salvation. And wonder there was no one to intercede. No man, total inability, no man can accomplish salvation. So what does he do? Then his own arm, the arm of the Lord, the Messiah, his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. We need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. The good, cute old lady cannot save herself. Her good deeds are not good enough. Isaiah 64, verses 6 and 7, also this humbling, humbling doctrine of total depravity. We, we have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. Once again, and, and Isaiah is using very gruesome 
imagery here of the polluted garments. We are a very sanitized culture. And the picture here is that our deeds before God, apart from His grace and His mercy in us, saving us, is just like a bloody rag. And some of you know what he means by that. Jeremiah also, Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is so deeply infected with sin that man cannot comprehend the depth of its depravity. That's why we deny total depravity because we do not understand how depraved we are. How about in the writings as we move to the next portion of the scriptures? The writings. The book of Psalms teaches us that we can only sing amazing grace when we first sing about total depravity. We can only sing hymns of thanksgiving to God's grace when we first sing hymns about our totally desperation and what sin has done to us. So, Paul used a lot of texts from Psalm in, in Romans chapter 3. Let's just look at two texts here really quick. Uh, going back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, David declares, here is David. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Here is King David declaring what? His whole being has been infected from conception. We did not come into the world innocent and sinless. The problem is not out there by changing society. The problem is inside us. And then you see, because look at verse 10. And then he cries out, Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. If you know Hebrew, you have God, Elohim, you have the verb to create, you have the verb for, then you have the noun, the spirit, Ruach, takes us to Genesis 1, that creation account. Then you have the heart, Genesis 6. What David is doing is taking us back to Genesis, saying we need a new creation. We need to be born again. To be delivered from this total depravity that we have. Psalm 58. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. Speaking lies. We sin because we are sinners. That's why we sin. We don't sin because our parents were, did not give us what we needed. Oh, if my... Ah, if my parents were nicer, if my, if my governor was nicer, I would sin less. No. You sin because of your heart. Your heart is sinful from conception. We move to the book of Proverbs. We see Proverbs 20, just going back, sorry, verse 20. 9, verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 9. Who can say, that's a rhetorical question. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I'm clean from my sin? What is the answer? No one. No one. There is not a, an aspect, there is not a, an area in our lives that's so holy, that suddenly, because of that holy spot in my life, I can overcome all other sins. No, I need God to make me born again. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child. What? The way he should go and he will not depart from it. That's a great text on total depravity. We take that as if we teach our children 
the ways of God, he will not depart from there. No, he's saying, you train a child the way, and they literally says, according to his own way, he will not depart from it. Meaning, you spoil the little kid, you give everything that he wants, and he will be a monster when he grows up. You will not depart from that, unless God comes in saving grace. Ecclesiastes, we have also in Ecclesiastes, but we don't have time. As we finish the Old Testament, we come to the Hebrew Tanakh. <laughs> As we come to the Old Testament, if you think about the, the Hebrew structure, the Tanakh, we come in the last book is Chronicles. And in Chronicles, you're also waiting for the great Davidic king to come and rescue us. Even though people have been released from the exile of Babylon, they're still in exile of sin. And the great expectation is the Messiah, the son of David, to come and rescue us, not from the exile of Babylon and the Persians, but the exile of sin. Because we were born in sin. We need a Savior to deliver us. So from Genesis 3 to Chronicles, or Malachi, if you're following the English structure, we have the clear teaching that depravity of man is total. It reaches all nations, all tribes, all tongues, and it touches all parts of our composition. And it's against this black background that we see the glory of the Messiah coming to rescue us. If there is any part of our composition that's not infected with sin, there is no need for a perfect Savior. If there is any part in us that has not been affected by sin, we have no need for a perfect Savior. Christianity is a sinner's religion. Amen? Jesus says, I came to save sinners. So as the Old Testament shows, we are sinners by conception from the top of our head to the sole of our feet. We are contaminated and infected with sin. Our hearts, the engine of, our, of who we are, are by nature depraved. Wow, that's a dark teaching. That's so depressing. How horrible. I come to this church and you talk for an hour about sin and the ugliness of sin. If we don't behold the ugliness of our depravity, the gospel will never be good news of great joy. We need to behold the ugliness of sin. We need a Savior. And we need a Savior. He's the opposite of totally depraved. We need a Savior who is totally disinfected, uninfected, unpolluted, and uncorrupted by sin. And that's Christ Jesus. Amen? So we're going to continue next Lord's Day. But you can see that that's not Calvin teaching that. It's the Lord teaching us. Father, we, we are indeed brought low through all these scriptures, Lord. And that's good. We need to be brought low. Otherwise, we will never rejoice in the salvation that we have. We praise you. We thank you. For something that we could never accomplish. And that is saving ourselves. Lord, thank you for speaking to us. We are eager to hear your voice, and I pray that your word will feed us, clothe us, change us.
Help us to see the beauty of this black background, Lord. Help us to see the deplorable state that we were at. You say that those who are forgiven much love much. Help us to see how much we have been forgiven by you, Lord. So we can love you more and more. Thank you for these beautiful doctrines of grace, Lord. We are humbled by your grace. Help all of us, Lord. Help all of us. Deliver us from self-centeredness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.